Bibles open there at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, um, and I, if you've uh, got a, an outline and uh, looking at the uh, outline of the talk on the back there, um, just on the right-hand side of the page, it kind of just gets blurry. So um, I kind of didn't work to those uh, ABC on the right-hand side. You can just kind of cross them out and they might appear at some point down that side and you can write it where you want. Um, there you go. Uh, let's pray as we continue looking at God's Word together this morning. It's a great privilege, isn't it, to sit under God's Word. Let's do that together now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus who died for our sins to give us life in his name. Thank you for the wonderful hope that is ours in and through him, uh, the hope that we'll be reflecting on this morning as we think about rest. We pray that you would give us understanding of your Word. Mostly, Father, we pray that as we get understanding that you would give us the wills to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when uh, my siblings and I were growing up, every year at Christmas time, my, my dad and mum would uh, take us camping at a place called Blackhead Beach. You can see why we went there. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? Uh, we loved it. We'd stay there for five or six weeks of the school holidays uh, every Christmas. We had this kind of family-sized tent, uh, tent and all sorts of other odd bits and pieces of furniture uh, that would make up our camping exercise. And Dad would drive up the week before we went uh, on holidays and he would get it all set up for us uh, just so we could go up and settle in and enjoy it. It was like a home away from home. Uh, but even though we kind of stayed up there for a long time, at the end of the five or six weeks, we still had to pack it all up and come home. Uh, we didn't live there. It wasn't our home. We were just camping. It's kind of why we took a tent, right? Because it's a temporary rain shelter. It wasn't actually our real home. Could you imagine how stupid it would be if my father went up the week before, hired a cement truck, uh, full of cement, laid a slab, uh, then started laying bricks on our camping spot for a six-week holiday? Now, apart from, of course, the camping site not allowing us to do that, it would just be silly, wouldn't it? Because we were just camping. But you see, here is the thing, because while we are here on earth... You and I, we are just camping. This is not our home. Now, I know, I know it might seem like we're here for a long time, although I must admit that the longer you're here, the shorter it actually does seem. But no matter how long it might seem to us, it is not our home. We're just camping. And I think Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us of that. In fact, it reminds us that we're on the threshold of heaven what the writer calls the world to come, our true home. Or is it? Do you think that heaven is your true home? Do you, for example, like the Apostle Paul, do you long for heaven? Do you consider it better by far to what we have now? Or, or do you, like the Thessalonian Christians, serve the true and living God in anticipation of your hope in heaven? Are you laying up treasure in heaven like the Lord Jesus encourages us to? Is your mind set on things above, not on earthly things? Or is the rest of early retirement or an overseas holiday or even long service leave a much greater incentive? Or perhaps you don't even know if heaven is the true home that you're headed for. You know you're headed somewhere because whether you like it or not, we're all just camped here on earth for a short period of time. But is heaven the true home that you're headed for? Or are you unsure about that? Do you want heaven to become your true home? 
Do you have questions that you need answers for before you can even make that decision? Because if you don't know where you're headed, well, let me encourage you that you really should do some investigating. Because God's promise to us today is that the way is still open to enter into his rest. The rest of God in the world to come, the rest of heaven. And notice that God does not want us to fail to reach it. I have a look again there at verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, last week's passage dealt, I think, with more of the negative side of missing out on entering into God's rest. Uh, There were some serious warnings. Remember last week in chapter 3, verse 12? uh, See to it that you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Uh, Beware not to fall away from the living God. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But today he's focusing uh, more on the positive. The promise of entering God's rest is still available today. And yet there is still a warning that they need to hear. You'll, You'll notice it right there. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Uh, October the 31st is the close-off date, as far as I understand, for getting your tax return in. Uh, Once that day has ended, the opportunity to get it in has ended. Uh, The only promise offered after that date is that you'll be fined for not getting it in in time. And can I just say, I once took it right to the line. That is, uh, these are in the days before you uh, entered things online. Anyway, I picked Leone up after work on the 31st of October. We drove into the city for Leone to jump out at the tax office and drop ours in. And when she went in at about 4pm, there were people still asking for tax packs and sitting all around, quickly filling them in to get them in by the deadline of 5 o'clock that afternoon. Now, that's what I call working to a deadline. We, We don't kind of have that luxury, though, when it comes to thinking about rest. We don't have a known close off date for entering into God's rest. We, we can't afford to leave it to the last minute because we actually don't know when the last minute is. And so that's why the author says for the third time in the last two chapters, see here there in verse 7 in front of you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, what we do know is that God's promise of rest still stands. But that leaves us with two questions. Uh, Two questions that I kind of want to try and cover in the remainder of this talk this morning. The first is, where does this promise of rest come from? And then the second one is, what kind of rest is it? What does it mean? Now, the main promise of rest that the writer to Hebrews refers to here is the great promise of rest he made to Israel. Uh, It was a promise about their future, about their inheritance in the promised land. Uh, But there was already a rest that had come before the promised land. And that was God's own rest that he entered into from the creation of the world. And so the writer actually reminds us about it in the second part of verse 3 there. Look at Hebrews in the second part of verse 3. He says, Although his works, that is God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Notice there the somewhere that God has spoken is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, right at the very beginning of the Bible, where God's creation of the world is recorded. Uh, the, the Jewish rabbis noted that in the Genesis creation account, the description of each creative day actually concluded with the, with the phrase, there was evening and there was morning, the first, the second, the third day, etc. 
but there was no such closing phrase uh, found in the description of the seventh day. And so they wisely concluded that the seventh day had no end. Once God had completed his work of creation, he entered into his rest. He began his rest in the perfection of what he had created. Once God had completed it, he was at rest. And so we know that God remains active in this world, uh, the world that, that he has made, and yet he is at rest, we're told. And the, so what we see is actually the rest of God actually predates the promise that he made to Israel. But it was God's great plan to share that rest with the Israelites, led by Moses and Joshua into the promised land of Canaan. And it's actually this rest that God promised Israel that is a picture of God's own rest. It's a picture of the rest that we're invited to enter into. And it actually actually helps our understanding of God's promise of rest to us now if we know something of Israel's history Now, I'm aware that you probably know many things about Israel's history, but let me just recap some of it for you. Uh, Israel, you might remember, were slaves in Egypt for many years. They were brutally treated. Uh, The Egyptians ruthlessly oppressed and enslaved them. Uh, They even go to the lengths of killing every newborn baby boy to try and wipe out their race. And when they cry out to God for his help, he raises up Moses to lead them. And then God miraculously rescues Israel and brings them out of Egypt uh, to safety. He brings them to Mount Sinai, where God makes a covenant with them, a, a binding agreement with them. That is, he promises that he will bless them and that he will give them rest in a land of promise. And so they in turn, they in turn promise to trust him and to keep his commands. But in in his promise to them, he says they would be his special people. He would bring them into a land of their own. They would no longer be slaves, but they would be free. They would have rest from their enemies. They would enjoy the blessing of, of this rich land, and God would be their ruler and protector. It was a miraculous rescue and change of fortunes for the people of God. God had brought these people, he had just saved, to the threshold of rest, to the threshold of the promised land. Now, what a contrast it was for them uh, from slavery and ruthless oppression. God has brought them to a land that is flowing with milk and honey where they'll be free from their enemies and live in peace and safety. All they had to do was to trust God who had just so comprehensively saved them and, and go into this new promised land. And yes, he said, yes, they would be opposed, but God had promised that their enemies would flee before them and he would protect and establish them in the land. It was a wonderful promise of God to the people of Israel. But instead, they chose to fear their enemies and distrust God. And so that whole generation failed to enter God's promised rest. So here is where this idea of entering God's rest comes from. It was part of God's promise to his people from the beginning and it was all about his salvation and great blessing of them. Now, tragically, that generation of Israel failed to enter God's rest. However, as as God had promised after that generation had died out, eventually Joshua, who uh, succeeded Moses, led the children of Israel into into the promised land. But did he lead them to rest? once they entered into the, into the promised land. Well, have a look at what we read here in Hebrews from verse 6. 
It says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now the point here is that if God is still offering rest to people in the time of King David, so long after, which is the quote from Psalm 95 he uses there, then it follows that the rest provided by the promised land was never meant to be the ultimate rest. Because Joshua did lead them into the promised land, and yet they continued to disobey God and face God's judgment. And so if Joshua had given them rest, then God would not have spoken later about another day. In other words, that rest is still on offer for us, even as we sit here today. And notice that the writer calls it here a Sabbath rest. That is, uh, right from the very beginning, God had instructed Israel to set aside the seventh day of every week as a day of rest. It was a structured weekly reminder of the promises of God. It reminded God's people of two things. First, this world is not ours. And then secondly, it was a reminder that God has greater plans. This world is not our eternal home. Rather, heaven is our home. And as followers of Jesus, we're looking forward to heaven itself. That's the rest that we're looking forward to. And the writer calls it a Sabbath rest. It's a little bit like that game, Pass the Parcel. Uh, I don't know if you remember that game, Pass the Parcel. You know, someone wrapped up a great prize in the middle in multiple layers of wrapping around it. Uh, It gets passed around a circle uh, until the music stops. And whoever's holding the parcel when the music stops, they take a moment, they open up the next layer. Perhaps there'll be even a little teaser gift in, in that layer. But the major prize still stands. It's still waiting for its reveal at the, as the last wrapper is opened. And God's promise of rest for Israel was like opening up one of the layers of the past, the parcel. It was a picture of the rest that still stands available today, not only to the Hebrews, but also to us. And so what kind of rest is it that remains open to us today? Well, can you imagine just how incredible it would have been for Israel to go from such pain and anguish and poverty and human sadness, suffering, to such outrageous blessing? I mean, even the physical rest that God offered captures the great blessing that God has in store for those who believe and enter his rest that still stands. Only it's going to be indescribably better. Notice verse 9 there. He says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now notice here that it's God's own rest that we are invited into. God's rest is our rest. How do we know that? We'll have another look at verses 2 and 3. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. You see, those two verses there actually tell us how we can enter into God's rest. That is by believing the message about Jesus, the message that Jesus Christ came to earth, 
that he died to pay the penalty for our rebellion against God, that he rose again to conquer death, and finally that he promised to return one day to judge the world and bring those who believe into his eternal rest. And so then he says there in verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so who are the people of God? Well, he's just told us, hasn't he? It's those who believe in him. God's rest is ours if we believe the good news of the gospel. But God's rest, unlike Israel's, goes well beyond some kind of transitory earthly blessing. It's much greater. It's not, it's not entry into Queensland where it's supposedly beautiful one day and perfect the next. I don't think that's true, but evidently. Um, but this is entry into God's own rest. The problem is that we actually fail to so often grasp the enormity of what is being offered to us. We actually don't get how significant this is. And one of the difficulties is that our world is so prone to trivialising things. So when people think of heaven, they describe it like a, a never-ending pack of Tim Tams or a, a box of per- perfectly ripened mangoes or maybe a, a chocolate-covered ice cream on a stick that they give the name heaven. And yet as we read Hebrews, the author is lifting our gaze and focusing our attention on Jesus, who has been exalted to the right hand of God in glory, where he rules and sustains all things and where he has blazed a trail for those who faithfully trust him to follow. See, Jesus has gone before us and he's taking us with him to heaven. What's it like? Well, Revelation 21 tells us that it will no longer involve any sickness or dying, no sadness or pain, no relational or social conflict or sin. There won't be poverty. There'll be no abuse. There'll be no hatred or crime. We won't know what fear or failure is. It will be unbridled joy. See, it's actually impossible for us to fully grasp but it will mean the realisation of God's purposes for those who trust him. This is not our home. Why on earth would we live as if it is? And if that's what we think, that this is all there is, then we need to change our worldview, or at least our view of the world. See, God has created us for glory and honour. But in case I mislead you to thinking that this rest kind of all lays in the future... Now, let me just quickly draw your attention to verse 3 again. Because in verse 3, notice what he says. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. Now, the word enter has both a present and future aspect there. Uh, This rest is not just a future hope. We enter it now by hearing and obeying God's voice through his word, through the Bible. And we, we enter it by believing in Jesus and his work for us, by trusting in his sacrificial death to restore our relationship with God. See, the rest we enjoy now is the peace that we have with God. We're no longer his enemies, and therefore we no longer fear his judgment. And our futures are assured. God's future rest still awaits its fulfilment. But like the original readers of Hebrews, we're on the very threshold of entering our great reward. We must not allow anything or anyone to stop us pressing forward across that threshold into everlasting honour. See, we're looking forward to heaven itself. And so the warning of Hebrews is to not trip on the threshold. 
And the writer here wants to encourage them. He wants them to grow in their understanding of the plans and purposes of God. In verse 1, he says to them, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He's held up the people of Moses' day and he says to them, look at your forefathers. They were promised rest. God had miraculously saved them and brought them to the threshold of the promised land. They stood there looking in. They saw the beauty and the abundance of that land. But because of fear, because of a failure to trust God, because of disobedience, they failed to cross that threshold into the God's rest. And so instead they went to their deaths, their bodies strewn in the desert. That is, they didn't believe that God was faithful They weren't convinced that he would keep his promise. And so the initial readers of Hebrews were were in the same danger. They were now under pressure. They were being persecuted. Could God be trusted to bring them into rest? And the writer wants to assure them that God's promise of rest still stands and the alternative is clear. They can either enter into God's rest with all of its joy or they can fall back. And so the same encouragement and warning actually lays before us today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Instead, see verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We must not fall by the same sort or the the same type of disobedience as the Exodus generation. I mean, the hearing of God's word must be met with faith with the trust of God's people. See, the person of God is is the person who rejoices at hearing God's word and allows it to shape him or her. We've got to strive not to do with the word of God as they did with the word of God. See, I've got nothing to say to you today but the word of God. I mean, I might have lots of things to say to you, but they actually don't matter that much. What matters is the word of God. Make sure you don't have sinful, unbelieving hearts. The promise of God cannot be ignored and disobeyed without consequences. See, how real is your trust in God and his word? You know, I for one am keen to enter God's rest. I'm so thankful that he has made it possible by believing the good news about Jesus. But just notice that Israel's disobedience went hand in hand with their lack of faith. Now take note of this. If we we truly believe the gospel message about Jesus, our faith will result in obedience. Because true faith is active, right? It responds in obedience to what it actually believes. It's not enough to just kind of confess a nominal allegiance to Jesus or, or only to pay the occasional lip service to faith in Christ Our commitment must be sincere and genuine and it must be for two reasons. What God says and what God sees. See verse 12 and following? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, if God's word has spoken clearly to his people, then it would be a mistake for us to treat it lightly. It's described as a living word, which means that what God said then is what God says now. 
Christianity actually bases its faith on what God has said in his word, the Bible. It's a living, relevant, powerful word. And as verse 7 says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's a word for today. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts today. We might try and hide things from each other, but we can never hide them from God and his challenging, life-changing word. Because what flows from what God says is what God sees. See, God sees below our thin veneer of outward Christianity. He knows the true thoughts of people. He tests your sincerity. Nothing whatsoever is hidden from his searching gaze. I mean, how ridiculous then are are the things, our pretenses, the masks that we wear so that other people don't see us properly. How sickening is our hypocrisy? See, make sure your faith in Christ is real because everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, what does God see when he looks at your heart? Unbelief, faithlessness, disobedience, hypocrisy? Or does he see truth? Faith, obedience, someone with whom he will share his rest. Is that what he sees? That's what he's looking for. Let me close with these words from uh, one commentator I read. He said, This new today and every today, as long as it is called today, is the day for responding to God's promise, to God's voice with trust and obedience. It is the day for not hardening one's heart or allowing distrust to turn one's heart away from the prize because it is a great prize. Now let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful promise of a rest that still stands that you are calling us even now to make sure that we enter into. Father, we thank you that we have a hope that is secure that we have peace with you now. We're reminded that even the Lord Jesus, when he calls us, he calls us to come to him, all who are weary and heavy burdened, because he will give us rest. And so, Father, we long for that rest. We long for peace with you now. And we long for security and certainty of the future and the goodness that you have in store for us as we enter your rest. And so be with us if there is anyone here today, Lord God, who does not yet know the great joy of being in relationship with you. Father, we pray that you might open their hearts and minds to see the truth, that you would give them the desire to talk to someone who can help them think about it. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help each and every one of us in this room today to be those who enter your rest. In Jesus' name, amen.